Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 15 of the Essential X Lapsed, an episode that'll see us taken to, well, one of my very least favorite places in the Marvel Universe. Um, folks who listen to Original Recipe X Lapsed will know that there's a place that uh, the X-Men go to an awful lot these days that I really, really don't like. The good news is we're not going there. The bad news is we're going to the place that I hate just a little bit less than that place. <laughs> and, uh... It is the Savage Land. Let's hop right in. This is X-Men number 10, March 1965, cover date. The story's called The Coming of... Dot, 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 Kazar, or Kazar. I, I will probably pronounce it both ways, and both are probably wrong. Written and edited by Stan Lee, pencils Jack Kirby, inks Chick Stone, letters S. Rosen, colors... somebody. Uh, cover price, 12 cents American. And so, as mentioned... We are in the Savage Land, and as is customary, we're going to skip the silly Silver Age spoilery splash page and just hop into our Titanic tale. Now, our story officially opens with... Oh, you'll probably never, ever, ever guess. Well, yeah, if you're listening this long, you probably will. Uh, The X-Men are in the Danger Room, and they are Danger Rooming. They are doing so under the watchful eye of Professor S., Um, Now, Xavier is back in the house, but I guess he doesn't concern himself with the post-grad studies. Now, we see Marvel Girl taking apart a rifle with her telekinesis, while Kid Cool tells her that she'll never be able to put it back together again. Now, when she proves him wrong, he gives her a sarcastic little clap. Or, I mean, maybe it's genuine. It's it's hard to tell. Uh, He does say that she is terrific, so eh, take that for what you will. Now, Cyclops congratulates her on a job well done, while thinking to himself that, uh... Well, he's got the total hot pants for her. Now, she thinks the same, but theirs is a love that cannot be, for reasons that uh, uh, they're a mystery to me. Anyway, the gang realizes that Warren didn't attend this training session, and so they literally bolt to his bedroom to find out why. I mean, they don't have this kind of sense of urgency when chasing down the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, but Warren doesn't show up, and they are just like, pew, they're in there, it's crazy. So they get to Warren's room where he's watching some television. I I wonder if Warren is the only student with a TV in his room. Maybe. I don't know. Now Scott goes to read him the riot act until Warren shushes him because they're about to see something that might affect the X-Men. Now what they see on the television is an expedition on Antarctica where one of these researchers have gone missing. Now... As they're watching, he's returned. He's this, uh, this missing researcher is returned to his team by a strange man wearing only a loincloth, and also his pet saber-toothed tiger. Now, the research, naturally, they, they go to attack. And uh, this springs the tiger into action, and the news claims that there were no fatalities, but I ain't buying it. Now, Cyclops comments how saber-toothed tigers have been extinct forever, so how can this possibly be? Also, there's a wild man. What's his deal? Huh. Now, Hank, summoning all the logistical power of Magneto, automatically assumes that this wild man must be a mutant. Man, I feel like I'm back talking about Millennium over at DC, where everybody was a manhunter. This book, anybody you see, is automatically assumed to be a mutant. From both sides, good and evil. It's crazy. Minutes later, and I still love how all the uh, time transitions are just like minutes later. It's it's every single time almost. Um, now, minutes later, the X-Men arrive in Xavier's study to talk about this weird event. The professor tells the teens that this wild man is not a mutant. But 
you know what? If the X-Men want to check into this, they have his blessing. And so the four underlings all run off to pack their things. Now Iceman, since he is a 16-year-old scamp, he trips Jean up with an ice slide, to which she refers to him as a juvenile Jerry Lewis, which might be a little redundant. I don't know. Meanwhile, Scott and Charles chat a bit, with our field leader getting a little bit of a uh, refresher on Cerebro. Now, Xavier shows him how there is currently no pinging where they're going, meaning there are no mutants in the Antarctic. However, Xavier warns that uh, this doesn't mean there isn't any other kind of threat there. Now, Cyclops realizes here that Chuck ain't going to be accompanying them, and he promises not to disappoint him. Days later, the X-Men arrive in Antarctica. They're in a Humvee-looking thing following a map to the location of that research team event. Once there, they locate a crevasse. They recognize it as the one that the wild man jumped into during the news report. The kids look deep into this hole, and they realize that they can't even see a bottom. And so, Cyclops uh, optic blasts straight down into it, which, I don't know, doesn't seem all that logical. But whatever the case, it causes a geyser of snow to shoot up, which gives the X-Men a way to traverse down the crevasse. And, uh... I can't explain it. We're just going to allow it. Um, now, after several hours of walking, or what at least feels like it, the X-Men arrive in a whole new, undiscovered world. Now, of course, they're still in the Antarctic, but for some reason, it's warm and sunny here. Well, the sky is pink, so we might assume it's sunny, or, or maybe it's crisis. Who knows? Uh, Warren takes flight, and he discovers a whole bunch of giant bones. It's an animal burial ground like he'd never seen before, which begs the question, how many animal burial grounds has he seen before? Then, a pterodactyl swoops over and nearly bites him in two. Cyclops blasts the dino, giving Angel enough room to escape. The X-Men then take a tour of this weird, savage place, and are in shock of all the thought-to-be-extinct wildlife just running around all over the place. But then, they're attacked by some dino-riding warriors and they lob gas bombs in the X-Men's direction, KOing all but the Beast. Now, Beast always seems to be the one who uh, survives the sleep bombs, isn't he? Uh, well, he dropkicks one of the warriors, but has to draw back to avoid being impaled by a whole bunch of arrows. Then, our wild friend runs up, yelling like Tarzan. This prompts the warriors to flee, but first, they snag the sleeping Jean Grey and take her back with them. Now, the wild man Sabretooth Tiger gives chase, but the baddies escape through the swamp, and I guess Zabu can't swim. Our new friend introduces himself as Kazar, or Kazar, whatever. Uh, nobody seems all that concerned that Jean's been kidnapped just yet. Beast puts his hand on Kazar's shoulder and thanks him for the save. Kazar, Kazar, does not like being touched, and what's more, his pet cat Zabu doesn't like Kazar, Kazar being touched either. And so the big cat lunges. Now, Iceman freezes the kitty in a block of ice, which Kazar Kazar shatters with a big stone. Cyclops blasts the stone out of Kazar Kazar's hands, and from there, we're in a full-blown brouhaha. Until more bad guys show up. Now, this is like the Marvel hero mix-up method on steroids here. This entire thing is being played out like in three panels, like the meat, the misunderstanding, the fight, and making peace. Real, real quick here. Usually, we can get like half an issue out of this. Here we get half a page. What are you going to do? Kazar, Kazar, attacks the new baddie, who is Magor, Magor the Killer. Okay. He's the last of the man-ape tribe. He ultimately winds up chasing him off by repeatedly yelling that he is the Lord of the Jungle. And uh, so I'm going to try that the next time I'm in any sort of uncomfortable situation. And uh, I suggest you all do the same so we can compare notes later on. 
Cyclops finally remembers that there used to be a girl on their team, and then he asks Kazar Kazar if he might help track her down. Kazar Kazar reveals that she's been taken by the Swamp Men, and he proclaims that he will take the X-Men to them. Angel decides to fly off on his own to get a better look at the place, and, uh, well, he winds up getting caught in a net. I mean, isn't dodging nets Warren's only danger room exercise? You'd think he'd be better at this, even though I think the last time we saw him in the danger room, he did fly right into a net, so fair play, Stan. Uh, Whatever the case, this net belongs to the Swamp Men, and so they deposit our winged wonder right next to our marvelous girl. It's revealed that these two are going to be used in a sacrificial rite. And so they're led to the top of a nearby pyramid, which houses a T-Rex under a strange mechanical floorboard gimmick. Like, like the kind of technology that the Savage Land probably should not have. Um, so Warren's there and he's all, Hey Gene, you know those TK powers you got? Maybe you might want to use them to untie us right about now? Maybe? Hmm, maybe? Uh, back with the boys. Bobby ice slides our heroes alongside Kazar Kazar as they approach the Swamp Men's fort. Once there, Hank breaks away to get a look on his own. At this point, Zabu roars, which gives away their location, and so the Swamp Men proceed to attack. Back to the pyramid. Jean is TK-tossing some stones in the T-Rex's direction. Warren suggests that maybe she try TKing the T-Rex itself. And so she does, tripping the terrible lizard onto its side. At this point, Jean's able to untie she and Warren, and they go to fly off. Unfortunately, Warren's far too weak from the ordeal, and he is easily caught by the ankles by the Swamp Men. Meanwhile, the barefoot beast of the barefoot beats is walking up the wall of the fort. Once at the top, he starts fighting the Swampies. Down below, Cyclops uses his optic blast to bust through a wall of the fort, and this reveals a booby trap, a blade on a mace which swoops through the hole, nearly just clobbering him. Kazar Kazar is able to push Scott out of the path of this mace, but just barely. He then screams like Tarzan again, which prompts several dozen woolly mammoths to charge the fort. I wonder why he didn't just lead with that. From here, a fight is on. And it's kind of funny, Stan can't even explain what Kirby draws here. The caption that Stan writes reads as follows. No mere words of ours can do justice to the fury of Kazar Kazar's attack. So we'll attempt no such written description. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the Marvel method at work. Anyway, the good guys win. Zabu chases the Swamp Men from their fort, and the X-Men reunite. We close out, and this is another really funny scene here. Cyclops refers to Kazar Kazar as a true friend. Kazar Kazar responds by telling the X-Men to leave and never, ever come back. And I'm not joking. It's like Cyclops is there extending his hand to shake it. Hey, it's, oh boy, it's so great to have a true friend in Kazar Kazar. And he's just like, no, you go now, don't come back. And so the X-Men leave through the tunnel that brought them, and Kazar Kazar barricades the passage as soon as they're gone. And that is where we leave it. Next episode, it will be our final visit, for a little while anyway, with the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And uh, boy, not an issue too soon, huh? They've been kind of monopolizing this book for a little too long now, so it'll be nice to... Nice to take them off the board for a minute, but uh, that's a discussion for next time. Uh, for now, we're not even done with this book. We've got the letters page to get to, the letters page and the, the special announcement section and the mighty Marvel checklist. Oh, boy. Let's get right into it. We're going to start with a letter from Barbara in Alabama. Now, she loves the X-Men. She loves Marvel. What's more, she is madly 
madly, passionately in love with Professor X. Uh, she says that, she, that he is, quote, just her type. She would like to know more about the X-Men's origins, um, which, I, I mean, they were born with their powers, right? I, I don't know. Uh, Stan promises that, uh, well, he'll tell some stories from X-Past, even some where the professor had hair. So, hmm, I, I hope that doesn't uh, affect how much she loves him, but uh, I guess we're just going to have to wait and see and uh, see if Barbara writes back. Next, we got Brian in Massachusetts. He uh, will not waste time inflating Stan Lee's ego by telling him how much he loves the books. Wow, what a dick. Um, he's got some questions, and he's got some comments. First, how do you pronounce Eunice, or Unis, maybe? Hmm. Uh, he wants Marvel Girl's head sock to have more blue in it. He doesn't like it being so dark. Uh, he'd like to see her hairstyle change back to what it was in the first issue. He, like everybody else, wants Iceman's friggin' booties back. Uh, he would like to keep Pietro and Wanda in the Brotherhood, but when they do turn good, he wants to see them go off on their own and not join the X-Men. And he would like Eunice, Blob, and the Vanisher to take their places in the Brotherhood. He'd like Scott to lead the X-Men two-thirds of the time. Okay. Uh, he would like Marvel announcements to be standard across the board. To which I gotta ask, why? I mean, do you really want to read the same news every week for a month or two? That seems like... They're giving you more content here. They're giving you more new. Just take it and like it, man. I mean, uh, let's jump ahead to, like, the 1980s books, right? Where we'd get... Dozens upon dozens of books every single month And if you were a completionist Or if maybe maybe it was Secret Wars, Secret Wars 2 You were collecting all the tie-ins Every single bullpen bulletins page was the same All the announcement pages were the same And that, that gets old quick So if they're giving you different information every week Then just, just enjoy it and appreciate it Because, boy, the, you know, the pendulum swings the other way it's, uh, It gets kind of dull now back to Brian. He would like Marvel to push back their releases until the end of the month. Okay. Uh, he points out in the end of X-Men number 8 that Angel has no wings, and he hopes that this gets him a, quote, super boner, no prize. What now? Hmm. Well, I tell you what. I did the work here. I checked the Essential Collection and Marvel Unlimited, and Angel has his wings in this panel. Maybe they were added later, right? That is a possibility. But as far as I can tell, he's, he's got the wings Unless I'm looking at the wrong panel Which is, I suppose, a possibility I flipped through, though What are you gonna do? Now, uh, Stan cops to the boner But, I mean, is that all it takes to get a no prize? Just pointing out a mistake? I, I thought you had to point out a mistake And then make it work within the context of the story Right? It's like, well, he didn't have his wings because of this And it's like, okay, well, that makes sense Here's your no prize Just saying, hey, you made a mistake Or... Hey, you know, uh, his shoes were red in this panel instead of black. I, I, I don't know. Uh, Stan also says that the U in Eunice is long, so now we know how to say it, even though we've been saying it that way uh, since Jump Street. Now we just need someone to write in and ask how to say Kazar, Kazar, and uh, maybe even Dakin, Dakin. Who knows? Um, next up, John in Vermont. Now he hated, hated comic books before Fantastic Four number one hit. And he's about to start college, and he considers comics to be great reading material. Cool. Me too. Uh, Philip in New Jersey. He asks why Bobby doesn't slip when he walks. You know, especially since he doesn't have his booties anymore. Now, Stan can't answer, but he puts it out there that a Marvel marcher can get themselves a no prize if they can explain it to him. So, uh, get to brainstorming, I guess. Norman in Ohio. 
He says that the Marvel style lacks quality. Ooh, we got a uh, we got a contentious little uh, letter here. He thinks Kirby isn't an artist, just a businessman. Boy, he says Kirby's work is unpleasing to <clears throat> the discerning comic book fan. <laughs> In 1964, they were discerning comic book fans. Uh, he would prefer to see Don Heck and Dick Ayers in the pencil seat. And, uh, well, be careful what you wish for. Uh, Stan accuses Norman of being related to Don and or Dick. And he says that he and Jack still love him, but Jack's off somewhere grumbling. Which, I mean, I'm, I'm there with you. Kirby isn't, you know, my favorite. Kirby is certainly not my style. But let's let's look at facts here. Dude was drawing like 100 pages a month at this point. Let's, let's cut him a little bit of slack here, right? And yeah, he, you're damn right he's a businessman. Everybody in comics was a businessman. Get over it. Uh, next up, Jack in Washington. He's got questions. He's got questions about Marvel Girl's hair. This is very, very important stuff here. He also asks if uh, they got her name as a play on the, quote, Marvel Age of Comics. And Stan replies that they sure didn't get it from Disney, which I guess that's aged oddly. Uh, Now, Stan blames Jean's hair on a woman's fickleness because they change up their looks and whatnot all the time, so... It's, uh, it's not Jack Kirby's fault. It's not uh, Dick Ayer's fault. It's, uh, it's Jean's own fault. She's just so fickle. Oh, boy. Mike in Massachusetts. He loved X-Men number 8. He says Chick Stone is finally starting to get it. He also loves the letters page, and I agree. I am a big fan of these letters pages. They are a lot of fun. He also loves the Merry Marvel Marching Society. And uh, he, I, I'm thinking he might just be like a Marvel-programmed AI bot because he just loves everything, and he's plugging everything. I, I just can't tell. Next up, Judith in Florida. Now, she starts by saying she's a psychology student, which, as a fellow who holds a, uh, a BS in psychology myself, I do know that feeling where uh, <laughs> you always have to preface with that. Um, now, as a psychology student... She feels as though the world telekinesis is obsolete. I mean, it's, it's also fictional, but who's, who's, keeping, who's keeping track here? Uh, she says that the term ought to be psychokinetic. Who cares? Uh, Stan certainly doesn't care. He just mocks her for thinking too hard and trying to point out errors in Marvel science. And, I mean, Stan, God bless him, he's got a point. I wonder what's next for uh, for Judith here. Maybe she'll write in complaining about the physical impossibility of Namor's little ankle wings. You know, come on. Uh, Jerry in New York. Now, he asks if the Stan Lee who wrote Monsters to Laugh With is the Stan Lee. And we get the perfect Stan answer here. Stan says, if you liked it, it was. But if you didn't, it was some other guy named Stan Lee. So perfect, perfect Stan Lee answer. Now, in case you're wondering, Monsters to Laugh With was a black-and-white magazine that Marvel put out in the mid-60s, which ran for seven issues. Now, it's a comedy magazine having to do with monsters, as if the name didn't give it away completely. And the covers would feature movie stills with a quote-unquote funny caption or voice balloon. Now, the first issue didn't sell so well, and so Martin Goodman added Stan Lee's name to the cover as a selling point. Now, after three issues, the title changed from Monsters to Laugh With to Monsters Unlimited, and it would only go four more issues. Now, that might be due to sales lagging, or maybe Stan having to write every single other thing Marvel was putting out. Maybe he just didn't have the time for it. Who knows? Now, Marvel would revisit this concept again in 1973 with their black-and-white Monster Madness magazine, which uh, 
also had Stan's name on the cover. It was by Sinister Stan Lee. That's our letters page. Let's hop into the special announcements section here. Uh, Now, Stan comments that the X-Men and Daredevil are still bi-monthly. Now, he claims that the sort of stories that they tell in those two mags take longer than the others. Yeah, sure. Uh, But Marvel is certainly open to trying to make the monthly somewhere down the line. He also pleads with readers to keep their letters short, which, wow. Um, I mean, I'll take any letters. Send it by carrier pigeon, scrolled in crayon, uh, whatever. I I just want the engagement. So uh, long, short, thin, tall, big, wide, I don't care. Send me whatever letters you've got. If you're writing a letter to Stan Lee right now and you think it might be too long, just send it to me instead. It'll be just fine. I will take it, and I will love it. Uh, Next, the mighty Marvel Checklist. Let's get into this month's books. Fantastic Four number 37 is Behold, a Distant Star. Amazing Spider-Man number 23 features Spidey versus the Green Goblin. Avengers number 14 has the Avengers fight something. (laughs) Thor 114 has Thor fighting someone. Uh, Strange Tales number 131 plugs Bob Powell's new take on the Human Torch and Thing, and uh, also Doctor Strange is on the run. Tales of Suspense number 64 introduces the Black Widow, and Hawkeye is back as well. In the other story there, Cap and Bucky fight some menaces from the past. Tales to Astonish number 66 has Giant Man versus Madame Macabre, and Hulk fights the commies. Sergeant Fury number 16 features the Howlers in North Africa. So, that's the issue in sum, and, uh, well, what did we think about this story here? Uh, it's, it's weird to look back on this, because had we been, you know, in late 1964, early 1965, and we see the X-Men go to the Savage Land, we might feel like that's yeah, kind of a departure, right? It's kind of a, uh, a stretch from what they usually do. It's usually more, yeah, we're city-based, right? We're in New York, we're dealing with evil mutants, it's kind of become the routine here. And here we go to some prehistoric pocket of Antarctica. It feels very, very strange. And of course, in 2021, with all the hindsight in the world, uh, we probably associate the Savage Land with the X-Men probably more than, you know, any other Marvel franchise. The Savage Land and the X-Men just kind of go together. We've, you know, I mean, in the current year stuff, we've got Krakoan plants growing. You know, they got a farm on the Savage Land, right? But I do wonder how fans uh, receive this. Back in the long ago here, and I'm definitely looking forward to reading some of the uh, the letters that come in about X Men number ten, just just to see, just to see what the uh, what did they call it, the discerning comic book readers of uh, 1964 and 1965 thought about the X Men almost being eaten by dinosaurs. I think that's uh, it's just silly enough to work, right? As for the story itself, it's it's pretty inoffensive, right? It's not like. Uh, uh, usually when you think about Savage Land stories, or at least when I think of Savage Land stories, I think, like, they're going to last forever. But as a one-and-done, you know, I mean, eh, there's far worse out there, right? This wasn't bad at all. Anytime I think about the Savage Land, um, I always think about talking about the X-Men animated series with my wife, because the only two stories from that entire show that she can remember is the fact that uh, it was the Phoenix thing that she thought went on forever, and it, it kind of did. And they were fighting dinosaurs. <laughs> and she's like, they, they were always in that dinosaur land. And uh, it's been so long since I've watched any of that stuff. But I also can recall, like, when I did see it, it's like, wow, we're spending a lot of time in it with, a, what was it, like, Amphibious and uh, Magneto's uh, weirdo crew of mutates or whatever. It felt like they were there forever. So um, that's what I always think about when uh, when the Savage Land comes up is, 
boy, they spent a lot of uh, cartoon episodes there. And again, I, I could totally be misremembering that. It's been, boy, it's been since they first aired. <laughs> I've watched them again. It's one of those things where it's like I'm afraid to even dip my toe into that because... I mean, I, I was—I didn't know a whole lot about X-Men continuity then, but any time I see them kind of contradict something that happened or get something wrong, it would bug me even back then when I had very little context, very little historical knowledge, and I couldn't imagine doing that now when, you know, 30-odd years later or whatever it is, it's, I'd probably, you know, bash my head into a wall repeatedly before uh, one episode ended. So probably best not to do that. But back to this story. Back to this story here. Um... It was okay, but it feels like uh, Stan was really grasping for straws here. This is a story that could have been told with any team. I mean, we could have had the Avengers, you know, get a get an alert from, uh, or just watch that uh, television show where the researcher was uh, rescued by the loincloth man. It could have been the Fantastic Four. It could have been anything. You know, this really didn't speak X-Men other than the fact that Beast mistakenly thought that Kazar Kazar was a mutant. That's the only thing that really made it. X-specific, but again, not terrible. Um, terrible we're, res- we're reserving for next episode. That's <laughs> going to be a little bit uh, a little bit of a slog, but we'll worry about that next time. But I think that's all I have to say about the issue. But before we get out of here, how about we hop into our own mailbag here? We got a couple of letters. We're going to start with one from our friend Jesse talking about episode number 12. Now he says, on the brink of what is hopefully a return to the current X-Men books, I wanted to write to express my thanks for the old ones that we're revisiting. And uh, in the words of Chris Hansen, that's not up to me. Um, it's all up to uh, the, uh, the the postal service or FedEx or whoever is uh, controlling the whereabouts of my DCBS package. And it is, it is FedEx. It is definitely FedEx. And... Uh, I think it shipped over a week ago, and it's still like somewhere in Texas right now. So your guess is as good as mine. Um, you know, I'm having a good time with these essentials, but uh, I do want to get us caught up on the uh, current year stuff because from what I hear, a lot of stuff happened. Uh, I mean, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but uh, I hear Magneto might have killed Bernard the Poet <clears throat> or somebody. Um, anyway, back to Jesse's letter. I've been reading the original X-Men, and it's such a relief and a motivation to keep reading when I know others are doing so with me. I'm glad that we're diving outside of the lead title to other appearances. It's making things richer, and it feels like they've been in-universe longer than they have been. The letters pages are fun to revisit as well. It seems like the fanboys love the Pretenders more than the X-Men. Wanda and Pietro, not the band Pretenders. Uh, do you think mutants call Franklin a pretender as well, or if it's just Wanda because they hold a grudge for something that's now fixable? I almost have a feeling that Franklin may actually still be a mutant, and there is shenanigans going on. We will see. Well, I'll start by thanking you for following along with uh, these essentials here. And yes, I agree. It's uh, definitely a motivation knowing that other people are doing it as well. Because, I mean, these stories are... <laughs> they are what they are, right? Uh, sometimes they are inoffensive, sometimes they're... Pretty, like a brutal slog, right? Um, we've talked about, I think it was X-Men number four. Yeah, it was X-Men number four that introduced the Brotherhood, and that one just felt like it was endless. Uh, same with the Fantastic Four issue. The Fantastic Four uh, 28, it was just like, oh boy, can this be over? <laughs> it just kept going and kept going. So it is certainly a motivation, uh, knowing that there are others out there doing the same thing, and... Uh, and being here to chat about it makes it all that much better here. I know that there are 
at least a few people out there who are reading along with the program. So that is that is really, really cool to know. And I'm glad you're enjoying the uh, the outside the main title visits that were taken here too, because that was something I considered at the start, and I was like, I don't know how many people are going to want to like sit through a discussion of an issue of Thor, right? Because I don't have much context for the character, I don't have much much appreciation for the character either. But I really wanted to make this. I mean, this this show was called The Essential X Lapsed as a play on the Essential volumes that Marvel put out around the turn of the century. But at the same time, the word essential. I mean, it has some connotations to it, right? It's This is everything, right? We want to be... This is the essential look at the Silver Age X-Men. So I thought it would be best to include as many appearances as possible, as, as many notable appearances as possible. Um, I'm still kind of hemming and hawing over doing Fantastic Four Annual Number 3, which is the wedding of a Reed and Sue. I was initially just going to skip it and just mention it. Like, oh yeah, the X-Men appeared here, but... Uh, you know, I think that might be an important issue to cover. Despite the fact that the X-Men are not the focus of it, they are there, and this is the first time we're going to see them in the same book with characters like Spider-Man and Daredevil and Doctor Strange. So I feel like it might be seminal enough to uh, cover here. And also, it's just such a huge touchstone for the early Marvel Universe, right? This is the book that told everyone in no uncertain terms that these characters all existed in the same in the same space. You know, we see them in the church. All all the people are together. Every all the heroes are there except for like I think Hulk and uh, maybe Namor ain't there. But I mean, everybody else is there, and it's uh, it's really really cool to see. So we're probably going to be covering that one. I think it's going to be episode twenty. As for the letters pages, I, I, I agree. They are such a hoot. They are a lot of fun to, uh, to take a look at here. They're almost... Well, I mean, sometimes they, they are more fun than the story itself. Uh, it's just really cool to be able to take the temperature of the fandom back then. It's, it's something we don't get to do very often because these letters pages aren't reprinted anywhere, right? They, these are not things that you're going to see often. And so I'm so happy to have the opportunity to share them. I mean, that's kind of the uh, that's kind of the fake ass comics historian in me, you know, sharing things that aren't shared often. And most people don't care, but when you find someone who does, it's very very special. I feel like with this show, we have a lot of kindred spirits here who can appreciate these uh, less glamorous, less gl- less glitzy sort of uh, bits of comics history and just appreciate them for. What they truly are, and um, I mean, this is cultural history. This is the history of people and how they received something when they received it, rather than us just looking back at these comics today, being like, "Wow, can we be done with Magneto? Oh boy, this is a slog." It's folks who are reading this who have nothing to compare it to. You know, they're not going to be like, "This wasn't as good as Claremont." <laughs> there was no Claremont at the time. It's just fun. It's just really, really fun, and I'm so happy that I have the opportunity to share them. Now, for the pretenders, the letters pages, they love. They love them some Pietro and Wanda. They love them almost as much, or probably more, than the X-Men in a lot of uh, occasions here. It's very, very weird here. As far as Franklin's concerned, um, I don't think we're done with him just yet. I really don't think we're done with him just yet. I think we will... I think they're going to flip-flop on him a few more times. Um, And actually... I mean, I have this odd, odd suspicion that uh, they might be flip-flopping the pretenders themselves. I, I don't have any basis for that uh, sensation, <laughs> but uh, 
I don't know. I have a feeling that that might be coming down the pike at some point. Jesse continues, The writing on the original books are still long-winded, but with a good night's rest ahead of time, it's manageable. And I tell you what, I usually read these right before bed. And, boy, I could read a current yearbook in five, ten minutes, and then I'm still kind of awake. You know, I can pop my headphones in, I can watch some videos, I could, uh, you know, watch something on TV for a little bit before I pass out. But these, oh boy, um, (laughs) they take a long time to read, for sure. And when I'm done with them, I am just zonked. Uh, Head hits the pillow, and I am done. (laughs) Now Jesse continues... In episode 12, I think it was, you had mentioned how the public had just flipped on the X-Men, and now the X-Men are hated and feared. I'm going to imagine that they, or the Brotherhood, did something in Journey into Mystery number 109 that turned the feet-loving public against Homo Superior. Yeah, I mean, I really don't know. It was so bizarre how, I mean, the worm turned just so quickly. Uh, You know, Beast goes from saving a kid to a very happy but negligent parent to suddenly everybody hates them. It was very, very strange to me. And, I mean, I I know what Stan's going for here. He's trying to differentiate the X-Men from the, you know, rest of the pantheon here, but there's a lack of consistency here, too, right? Um, I mean, in Journey into Mystery 109, the X-Men have statues in the Hall of Heroes. They're not universally feared and hated. They're just kind of feared. It's very strange. Uh, It feels like they... They're reluctant to stick the landing. Maybe they don't realize what the landing is going to be just yet. I think that books with Marvel's Merry Mutants nemeses should be involved in this reading, and and if an X-Men's shadow or hand shows up, even the better. That's another reference to Journey into Mystery 109, where Thor fights Magneto, and uh, the only thing we see of the X-Men are their shadows and Beast's hairy knuckles. So uh, I I will definitely be including um, as many Magneto appearances as possible. And again, as I've mentioned in almost every episode of late, if... If there's something coming up that you guys know about that I might not be aware of, please, please let me know, and I can make sure to get it on the docket for us. Jesse continues, You're doing a great job, Chris, and I really appreciate the community that you've brought together. I've never had many, if any, friends I could talk comics with, and with you in the Facebook group, it's like being in an old AOL chat room again. And that is probably the greatest compliment (laughs) that this show can get, because that's the kind of feeling I was hoping to evoke, you know? I did the AOL thing when I was a teenager, I did the Usenet thing, and you had this odd feeling of community that, you know, the world was a lot bigger back then. You know, the world is very small, relatively speaking, now, where at any given point in time you could reach into your pocket and say something to the world. You know, back then you you couldn't do that. You had to wait for the the blips and bloops of your (laughs) dial-up, and uh, it was a destination. You know, I think that's what I'm trying to get at here. Going to an AOL message board for Marvel Comics or X-Men Comics was a destination. Hopping onto Usenet BBSs to the Rax MX MISC, whatever the hell it was, that was a destination. You were going there with a purpose. It wasn't just a... It was a less passive thing than um, just you know scrolling through Twitter or through Instagram or something like that. It's, it's that old feeling that I really, really miss. And... Um, I can't lie. Every time I open up Facebook and I see that there's some messages in that uh, in that group, the X-Labs group, it uh, it brings a smile to my face. I, I even even if it has nothing to do with anything I wrote or produced, if it's just people talking about comics or talking to each other, it's it's wonderful. It really does take me back, and the community that we have here is just is just wonderful, and I appreciate 
every single person and uh and hope if uh, if you're listening to this and you're not part of that group that maybe you decide to uh, dip your toe in see if you like it uh jesse continues it's not exactly x-men but i was all i was cringing reading thor's human form's name as don i've always heard and said donald and i need to say he's a crap doctor in Journey into Mystery 109, Thor fights Magneto, heads to his office, spends ten minutes there lecturing a kid on how to throw a football, and then says, eh, that's my last patient for the day, Jane. <laughs> it was his only patient of the day. Stan did not know how to time things, did he? And no, no, uh, Stan, Stan struggled with that a little bit, as evidenced by how everything is minutes later. I mean, we, we flew across the country minutes later in their jet. It's like, huh? <laughs> How did we get? How did we get from New York to Florida? Come on, that's uh, that's not minutes, pal. Uh, Jesse wraps up with, "Well, until the world's most powerful telepath and an omega-level mutant can outbrain power a dude with some clay, <laughs> make mine lapsed. Well, here's the important question: Is it regular clay or is it radioactive clay? Because I mean, they're they're two very very different things, aren't they? We'll just leave that for the puppet master, I guess. But uh, thank you so much for writing in on uh, on that weird, weird Thor story and uh, for sharing all your thoughts on uh, this essential run of episodes. So thank you so, so much. Next up, we got Billy talking about episode 13. He says, hey, Chris, glad to have sparked some good memories with Reggie. You can really go down a rabbit hole with the chicken or egg deal. And uh, what Doc is referring to here, if you hadn't listened to episode 13... We were talking about how, and this is a conversation that Reggie and I would have all the time because we were kind of obsessed with um, culture's effect on on fiction and fiction's effect on culture. And that's the chicken and the egg thing here because so much of what we think about as being cultural may have had its roots in fiction. And conversely, so many of the you know seminal fictional stories out there have a basis in reality or anecdotal experience. And the question is, like, which which affects which more, right? I mean, think about, like, Sherlock Holmes. Think about detectives in general. You know, we picture detectives a certain way because we picture Sherlock Holmes. But, and I mean, I don't have any kind of context for this, but was Sherlock Holmes based off of anybody? Was that look, was that behavior, was that based off of anybody? Or did that just become, you know, universal shorthand for detective? You know, you think about movies, like a movie I never saw, but one that I know... I don't want to say inspired a generation, but it affected a generation. Think about a movie like Clueless, you know, where they had, like, this weird version of teen speak, and then suddenly it became real teen speak, right? It's uh, what affects what. And and that's just something that we were talking about uh, in episode 13 as it pertained to the way that Stan Lee portrayed the Beatniks, you know? Was, uh, was this Stan's first-hand experience, or was he maybe projecting the way he thought a beatnik would speak, would behave, and thereby affecting the way that we, the readers, the viewers, the audience, views beatniks. You know, which is which. It's uh, I mean, I'm definitely thinking about it too much, and I'm trying to analyze something that Stan probably didn't give two seconds thought to, but uh, that's kind of what I do. Uh, Billy continues, This issue sounds like fun, even if a bit contrived pitting the teams at odds. These early issues look really bad nowadays in regards to Professor X and his indiscretions. But hey, they're just funny books after all. I mean, more to my point there. These are these are just silly Silver Age stories. But yeah, Professor X is uh, yeah. The, a lot of his behaviors here didn't uh, didn't age well. And of course, as we mentioned during the discussion of Episode Thirteen, which had the Avengers versus X Men slap fight and hair pulling extravaganza, 
eh, a bit contrived. Yeah, rather than Cyclops just saying, hey guys, listen, we can't let you take out Lucifer because Lucifer's heart is attached to a bomb that will destroy Antarctica if something happens to him. Instead of saying that, Cyclops just optic blasts Thor's hammer. It's like, uh, well, maybe. Uh, Billy wraps up with, keep the wheels moving forward, and I look forward to more X-Fun. Thanks. Well, thank you for being here. It really, really means a lot. And I always look forward to hearing your thoughts on these issues. So thank you so, so much. Now into plugs. Uh, If anybody out there would like to write in and be part of the show, share your thoughts on anything X or anything at all, I guess, you could find me several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot me an email at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed hotline at 623-396-JERK. Uh, for blog posts and show notes, you can go over to chrisisoninfinitearths.com. You can join us on that Facebook group that we talked about a little while ago. It is 90s X-Men on Facebook. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comics commentary listening needs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And if while you're there you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, it would mean so much to me if you would uh, spread the word, share the show, tell a friend or two, and uh, help me to grow this thing just as big as we can get it. It would really, really mean a lot to me. Speaking of which, it means a lot to me that you'd uh, allow me to be part of your day-to-day. You'd let me occupy your ears for uh, uh, nearing on uh, three quarters of an hour. It really, really means a lot. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.